The word of God from Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is God's word given for our good. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thank you, Winnie. Um, would you remain standing and please keep your Bibles open, of course. Um, but let's first ask the Lord to be present as we study. And let's pray. Father, um, thank you for these ancient songs. Thank you that they have been on the lips of your people. And so this morning anew, in a long line of worshipers, we come to you with these words on our lips too, Lord. And we'd ask that you, by your spirit, would apply them to our hearts. And where the words are strange and confusing, make them simple, that our faith would be simple and wholehearted. We love you. Bring comfort to your people as we study your word, we ask, to the glory of your Son and our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, well, good morning. And it's my turn to say happy Father's Day to you papas. And uh, being a dad is sacred and holy and so stinking important. So God bless you and give you extra grace today. Um, if you are new here and visiting us, we're so thankful that you're here. I'm Ronnie, by the way. I'm the senior pastor here. Uh, you've caught us in the, summer, the summertime where we're studying the Psalms or what I call God's playlist for the people of God. And these psalms are songs that were intended to be sung together until the lyrics of these songs are so deeply buried into our spirit that we begin to believe what we're singing. And uh, Psalm 46 does just that. It's a song that has been sung for almost 3,000 years precisely in the very hardest moments 
of a person's life, this psalm has been on the lips of millions of believers throughout the ages and has been oftentimes the very last words of men and women, the very last words that they have uttered as they pass away from this life unto the next. Imagine that, that this song being your final words. And why, why Psalm 46? It's because it infuses us with confidence in our most fearful moments. We are a fearful culture and we need this bad. And we need to say these words back to God. There's this organization that surveys and tracks the fears of Americans in, um, in the different decades and so forth. At the very top of their list, they tell us that Americans fear corrupt government officials, healthcare, water pollution, not having enough money for the future, nuclear weapons, collapse of the electrical grid, people we love dying by disease, police brutality. The list goes on. We are an extremely anxious culture. You know, this reminds me when uh, my girls were really little, they were understandably creeped out by, um, by mascots and clowns and like those characters like at Disney, Disney World, y'all you know what I'm talking about? I can remember when we first took them to Chuck E. Cheese, uh, it was not an immediately positive experience. I could remember Allie, my uh, more anxious child. She's just a little, little buddy. She uh, was not having it. She didn't want any weird mouse greeting her. And so as soon as we go in, she could see the, you know, the, 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 you know, the mechanical ones on stage, and she jumps right into my arms. And I try to comfort her and console her, and she was nestling her face right into my chest. So I, I walked away from the stage. Right? I didn't want to be too close to those characters. Um, and yet none of this was working right? Uh, she kept like grabbing my clothes and, and I'm starting to get a little bit annoyed. She's like putting her like knees up into my side. It's making it kind of hard to hold her. And it, it's getting really awkward. She's wrinkling my clothes because uh, I, I have her in my arms, right? And I kept saying, relax, like relax. I got you. Like no one's going to come near you. And no matter what I said, she just kept getting more restless and, and grabbing me tighter. And, um, and it was really bothering me until I turned around and I realized that a walking Chuck E. Cheese was like right behind me, <laughs> literally standing with his big weird eyes like 12 inches from her, from her face. Uh, what a parenting fail. <laughs> and I think that kind of represents how we all feel. I mean, sure, we trust God. We allow him to hold us, to sustain us until we don't. And we forget that we're in his arms because all we can stare at and focus on is our fears. And our fears feel closer to us than God's presence. Our fears and anxieties seem to be all present. And it's like we live in this constant state of fear. And if as a church... We can't get our hearts free from these algorithms of fear and anxiety, then we have very little to say to the world. You know, I'm not sure if you feel like this, but when you read the Psalms, they begin to sound like a broken record. You know what I mean? 
And there's a reason for that. Even though so much in the world has changed from the original audience who received Psalm 46 a millennia ago, even more has stayed the same since then. There is a haunting of fear. There is a spirit of fear in the world. And the message of Christ in this generation is going to look a lot less like winning an argument and more like breaking a spell, as one author puts it. We are under a spell of fear, and it makes us, you guys, like awful people, or at least unpleasant, because fear always makes us like always and only thinking about ourselves. And so God is putting this song on repeat to break the spell. And so as we approach this psalm, it's going to help us ask this question. And this question is both for Christians, but if you're here and you don't believe in Christ, this question is for you too. And it's this, where do I go when there are reasons in my life to fear? Like, where do I go mentally? To whom or to what do I run to when life gets seriously anxious and fearful? Like, what is your place of refuge or security? Where do we go when anxiety rises above your head? Because we all have those places, don't we? We all have those places. We run somewhere. And so we need to ask the question. And so my prayer as we get into this is that God would open the eyes of our heart to know that he alone is our refuge. And I want you to believe that not just as a theological fact, but as a deep reality in your soul. So with that, let's study the psalm. I'm just going to use two questions. First, who is God? And then what is our response to that truth? First, who is God? Uh, when my family and I first moved to Puerto Rico years ago, um, as you might expect, we were drawn to the beautiful Caribbean beaches. Uh, but we also didn't quite understand the dangers of those beaches. And because I was a swimmer in college, uh, I perhaps had an inflated view of my skills. So I was playing at the time with Micah on the beach, and Micah at the time was just four years old. He's a little guy. And judging by the waves, I think my wife would say, we really should not have been in the water, and I really should not have been in the water with my little son. But there I was, maybe three feet of depth of water, until it wasn't. Very quickly, the waters began to swell, and I could see this big wave, we'll call it the big wave, rushing towards Micah and me. And this is thousands of pounds of water and deep currents underneath us coming after just the two of us. I grabbed Micah into my arms and I start heading back into the shore, but the current was much stronger than I was and my feet began to slip as it's pulling me. You know what this feels like when it's pulling me back out to sea. And in that moment, I internally began to panic because a wave this big coming over our heads is extremely dangerous. And I am well aware how powerless I truly am in that moment. Now, my panic is fully turned into protection at this moment. And I think I am going to protect my son at all costs. And so we turned to face the wave. We braced ourselves. And I don't think I've ever held on to Micah more tight than I did in that moment. And here's the thing, 
Like I am Micah's dad. I am 100% for him. I love him. I would do anything in my power to protect him. And if you have kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But on that day and in that moment, although I am with him and for him, that sea is stronger than me. And there's no question that I felt my heart swell for, the, for my son, but I am small and my son was not truly safe. And we survived it, but only by God's grace. And with such anxious moments like that in our life, with such little certainty about anything, it makes us begin to wonder about God. Like, I know that God is totally for me. I know that he is committed to my God, but is he actually able to protect me? Is he small? Which would prove that I have every reason to be afraid. Or maybe your doubt is a little bit different. Maybe you trust that God is able to protect you, right? He is God after all, but you wonder, is God actually for me? Does God actually delight in working good on my behalf? The psalmist wants you to know who God is so that you can put these questions to bed. Four times in the psalm, we're told who God is. So God is symbolically likened to different things that are meant to arouse and to awaken confidence in us. First, look at verse one right away. Look there in your Bible. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. I want you to notice that word refuge. Like when the wheels come off, when the whole thing is unraveling, when the outhouse and the windmill collide, I just learned that one this week. It's a Midwestern saying, I think. When the tornado is heading straight for you, you have to run somewhere, don't you? Who is God? God is a refuge to whom you run. He is a present help, not from trouble, look there, but help in trouble. See, the psalmist is not naive. He knows that you will have real trouble in this life. And then look at verse four. Does it again. The, the singer likens God to a river. It says, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the most high. So commentators will tell you that this metaphor describes a scenario in which a city is totally under siege and the city walls are surrounded by enemies, right? Chariots out ready to seize it. But if the city has a water source, if it has a river, it can stand there all day long. It can survive the siege. The presence of that river makes the city glad. It makes it confident. Now it's important to note that Jerusalem does not have a river running through it. The singer is not talking about an actual river. He's talking about what? The very presence of God, which is represented right in that next line by the temple, the, the holy habitation. The city can withstand any attack so long as there is a constant source of God's presence. So who is God? 
an unending source of refreshment, even when you are under attack. Look one more time with me at verse 7 and verse 11 in your Bibles. These two verses, you'll notice, are the exact same. It says, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So who's Jacob anyway? So if you'll remember Abraham, God makes a promise to Abraham, establishes, right, the whole people of God. So Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob, whose name later would be changed to Israel. Jacob will have 12 sons from which make up the 12 tribes of Israel. When you read the story of Jacob, and he is a man, right, whose life is constantly under siege by stupidities that either he provoked himself or that others have made for him. We can talk about his crazy uncle Laban with his lies. We can talk about his wife Rachel and her household idols. We can talk about his brother Esau, who he deathly was afraid of because he stole his birthright. And yet what we see is in spite of all of the chaos in Jacob's life, God proved faithful. And through his 12 sons, the world would get its savior, Jesus. The same God of Jacob is our fortress. And he's also our strength, our strong walls, our fortress. Now, I'm not sure if, you, if you're hearing what I'm saying right now, because I'm saying words that you hear all the time. Listen, it's not simply that God gives you strength, although he does on occasion, but not always. What the singer is saying here is that God is our strength. That is when you have sobbed and sobbed, when your body is collapsing in exhaustion, when doubts have flooded your soul, and it's so overwhelming that you literally fall asleep in those really uncomfortable hospital chairs, and you have no idea what the next day brings, you still wake up. And the sun rises the next day. Why? Were you strong? No, you collapsed in doubt. God was your strength, and so you carry on. And when people look back and ask you, how did you do it? You say, I didn't. God is my strength and my fortress. And listen, I'm not trying to make too fine of a point here, but I wonder how many of you might be spiritually exhausted trying to be strong for God instead of allowing him to be your strength. Like, I wonder how many of you actually think that you must be strong so that God will like you enough so that he will want to protect you from trouble. That's not how it works. Look at me. That's not how it works. In this life, in this life, you will experience things so severe that it will take your breath away you will experience things so severe that it will drop you to your knees. 
The Lord gives and the Lord takes away and he is sovereign over all things and he alone will be exalted in the earth. And there is no promise that God will insulate you from these troubles. But while you're in the middle of the trouble, in the middle of the attacks, God will be present. A refuge, a river, a fortress. And for some of you, it's God plus other things is your refuge, right? So you run to food, right? You feel under attack, you feel stressed, you run to binging the Netflix series. You run to your children's accolades, your bank account, your insurance, your next break and vacation in the mountains. You run to alcohol or pornography, you run to medical solutions or you run to a, a positive optimistic prognosis. Don't do it. Don't do it. If you find refuge or strength in anything in addition to God, the whole thing falls apart. And so you have to sing Psalm 46 back to God in your dark moment so that you can say, he is the Lord. Let him do what is right in his own eyes. I find no refuge in solutions. I find refuge in the Lord. Everything in your life, and especially the good things, you guys, especially the good things, those things must be surrendered to the Lord. You know, Martin Luther, the reformer in the 16th century, like, when all the chaos and all of the death warrants against them and all the things of the Reformation had come unhinged, right? When the wheels came off, he writes in his diary that he had to sing Psalm 46 over and over and over again. And based on Psalm 46, he would later write a song that you and I sing regularly. If you grew up in the church, you know, A Mighty Fortress. It's based on Psalm 46. It says this, he says, let goods and kindred go, family. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still his kingdom forever. Dwelling on who God is can get your soul prepared to sing that song in all sincerity, to mean it. So let's go now to our second point. As we give ourselves to the truth of who God is, what does the song say our response ought to be? So I want to acknowledge real quick up front that a lot of my cynicism towards um, modern evangelicalism can, um, can be a little unhelpful at times. I've probably made too many snide remarks about skinny jeans and smoke machines, weird politics and self-help messages and manipulative sentimentality. And I probably am a little bit over the top. And, and in all sincerity, I really don't want us to be a congregation that is cynical. Like, I don't, wanna, I don't want us to be that, that, those, those kind of people. Um, but there is dangerous things. And I think about the danger of the commercialization of the Christian faith, as if we're trying to sell something. Listen to me carefully. I am not selling you anything. 
I'm simply trying to break the spell of fear and despair by telling you what is actually true, both visible and invisible. I'm trying to tell you what is true about this universe and the creator of it. That's what I do every Sunday. And so I don't think I'm too, being too alarmist with my concern about the commercialization, particularly with the Psalms. There are verses that find their way onto our wristbands and onto our pictures and our coffee mugs. And one of the more common lines that are on our bookmarks and posters is a verse that we study today. Be still and know that I am God. You can Google it. There are tons of products that you can buy with that verse on it. And that is a great verse. The problem is, is that whenever we take a verse out of context, it will begin to lose the weight of its significance. See, that verse is speaking to our response in light of who God is. And in fact, as we're going to see, there are three responses that are enumerated, and they all belong together. And so let's look at them so that we can recover the weight of them. First look at verse 2. Therefore, we will not fear. That's a response. We will not fear. Now, we, we've spoken about this before. It's very well documented. The words do not fear are perhaps the number one most repeated exhortation throughout the Bible. And what this is saying is not, it, listen, it's not that we don't ever feel scared. Right? If an angel of the Lord were to appear right now, we'd fall on our faces because we feel scared. When our children are sick, when our business is making layoffs, when we get a phone call at three in the morning, yes, we feel scared. The exhortation to do not fear does not speak to the state of being scared but rather a commitment to trust. When bad things are happening, you trust that God is for us, that he knows things that you and I don't have access to. The singer does not make this call to trust glibly. In fact, he gives us cataclysmic scenarios that could tr transpire in which we're still called to trust. Look at verses two and three. Four times the word though is present. Trust the Lord, do not fear, trust him. Though the earth gives away, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. The, the psalmist here is speaking about humanity ending apocalyptic events even before they had any imagination for it, right? They'd never seen the movie Armageddon. Deep impact. The day after tomorrow. I am legend. Terminator 2. Or, I looked up, this Norwegian movie called The Wave that is literally about a mountain crumbling into the ocean and it becomes such an issue that the whole world is in danger because a tsunami is gonna drown the whole world. The psalmist writes, the mountains in the psalm are symbols of stability, of solid things that can be trusted on, secure things. And then waters, on the other hand, connote this, the symbolic idea of mayhem, 
of chaos. The psalmist imagines a day which the solid things that people are inclined to trust in crumble into chaos. In other words, in light of who God is, in light of what we know what he is like, we do not fear because we never trusted in the security of mountains. It was always God who was our stability, even more than the ground that we walk on or the air that we breathe. So we do not fear, we trust. But you'll notice we also behold, behold. Look at verse eight. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. And then notice how the the examples of natural disasters of verses two and three now become political disasters disasters that God resolves. In verse nine, look at verse nine. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Now what's the point? We may fear natural disaster or we may fear some outworking of human depravity in the world, but either way, God is still our refuge And your heart will not believe that until you behold him. Behold the works of the Lord. Now this response is an impossible task. Because I know you. Like we leave no margin in our lives for anything that remotely feels like boredom or stillness. Right? If you're waiting in a line in the grocery store, you can't just stand there. You have to scroll. You have to occupy your mind with something, don't you? Why? Because if you sit still long enough, what happens? It feels like the noise and the fears and the anxieties of this world are like a bullhorn in your ear. Did you notice all like the noise in this passage? Waters roar. Mountains tremble. Look at verse six. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. But then something breaks that bullhorn. What is it? He utters his voice and the earth melts. Beholding the works of the Lord at least means that you are still enough to listen for his voice. Do you listen for his voice? And, and I'm not talking about some sort of charismatic experience where you're trying to hear some audible voice. I'm asking you, do you long to know what God is saying to you? Like, do you long to know what God is saying to you? Because only his voice can make the earth and its fears melt. And so our response to who God is 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 to not fear, to trust, to behold, and not, uh, not surprisingly, to be still. Look at verse 10. Be still. Know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. When the singer exhorts us to be still, 
it's not speaking only to being quiet, but to being confident, right? Like right when the sirens are sounding and the tornado is close and you go down into your bunker and you hear the rushing winds, when you're down there, what do you do? Nothing. You just sit there and trust the walls, right? You do nothing but trust. You are still and you're confident. You know, I've been reminded this week why this is so important. And, and you need, you guys, you got to listen to me carefully because I'm, because I'm your pastor and I know the phone calls you're getting even this morning. I know the calls that you're getting and life comes at you fast. Maybe some of you this morning, you're here and you're not exactly feeling the storms of this world, but I promise you, you are only one phone call away from your life unraveling. So right now is the time. Right now is the time to teach your heart these lessons. You don't learn about fighting a war during wartime. As you know, Jason and I have been at the General Assembly of our denomination this week, and we got to hear a lot of stories about two particular men that died this last month, Tim Keller and Harry Reeder. Tim Keller, perhaps the most influential pastor of this generation, he died of pancreatic cancer. In his final days, knowing that he had just a few days to live, he asked one of his closest friends to be the messenger to a group of his other friends um, upon his death. And so when he died, a few people got a personal phone call. And it went something like this. Hey, Tim has a message for you. He says, I know why I was given cancer. I love the Lord. I am home now. I am home now. Or maybe you know um, Harry Reeder, another pastor, 18-wheeler, trash truck, runs into it, dies instantly. His daughter, Jennifer, wrote this excerpt. I'm going to read parts of it to you. Listen to the daughter speaking of her father. She says, tragic, adjective, Dreadful, calamitous, disastrous, or fatal. I do not want to be accused of being a semantical zealot. However, this has been on my mind for the last two weeks. Many will say in their most well-intentioned, kind-hearted, and gracious way things like, I cannot believe that Pastor Reader was killed in this tragic accident, or what a tragic event. And I fully understand the intention and sentiment behind these comments, and I appreciate the heart of those who say that. And I'm not meaning to parse words. However, words have meaning. And what I believe is this, the death of our father at 10.01 a.m. Thursday, May 18th on Highway 41 in a car accident was not tragic. Was it shocking? Yes. Was it earth shattering to us? Absolutely. Was it devastating, mind numbing, soul shaking, heartbreaking, body aching, overwhelming, and not understandable? For sure. But was it tragic? Never. 
Our heavenly father determined the time and date of Harry Lloyd Reed III's entrance into the world and exit into heaven long before he ever existed. Our heavenly father was not surprised by this, nor was he shaken by this. There is nothing tragic about this homecoming of the one who loved Jesus. Are we heartbroken? Yes, a thousand times, yes. Every day brings tears, some days more than others, some less. The hole in our life is immense. We miss him desperately and completely. And we will walk through the valley of shadow of death day by day, knowing that our God is with us. But our valley in that shadow is not one of tragedy as in Greek literature or Shakespearean drama. Our valley and our shadow is one of brief estrangement, which will one day end. And we are herded through it by God's sheepdogs named goodness and mercy. And we choose to lean into the preordained, predestined, pre-appointed time of our dad's time on this earth while we never saw it coming. Our sovereign God did. And while we don't understand it, we have peace in knowing God, our father, did not get played by some tragic twist of fate. He made his entrance into glory at the exact moment and the exact time and in the exact way it was meant to do so. And so there is nothing tragic about that. That's his daughter. Denver President, like Psalm 46 wants you to have that kind of confidence. And I know that we have just this faint grasp of the promise of peace and confidence that passes all understanding. But I want that so bad for this church. It's the only thing that can sustain us in this broken world. It's the only thing that can break the spell under which we all live. And so let me finish with one last thought. As I mentioned earlier, verse 7 and verse 11, they repeat, don't they? It's almost like a chorus to this song. The people of God are saying, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And, and if they could sing that song and believe it, that God is with them, how much more? How much more can we sing that and believe it? Our Lord Jesus Christ is with us. He, he tells us that by his spirit, he will remain with us. In Matthew 28, he says, lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. And telling you who God is and demonstrating our proper response in this text is a really good start, but I want this to be a deep reality in your spirit. You know, Jesus and his disciples, they give us this living parable of Psalm 46. You'll remember that story from Jesus's life when he was out on the sea, he's in a boat on the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat when this big tempest overcomes them, right? And the storm beats against their little boat while his disciples are just there like bailing water, trying not to sink. They're absolutely fearful and they're so sure that they're gonna die. Like this is it. They think to themselves that like, like it all ends here. Jesus can sleep in the middle of the storm, not because he doesn't care, 
but because he's actually the one in control. But his disciples, they don't see it that way. And so they wake him up and they ask, like, don't you care that we're going to die? Don't you care? And that's the question, isn't it? Isn't that our question? Either God is for us and his hands are tied or God is quite capable, but we're not sure that he cares enough that we're going to die. But Jesus woke up. He went to the edge of the boat, uttered his voice, and the storm melted. And he says what? Be still. And it was. And the text tells us that the disciples were filled with great fear and they said to one another, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And church, I'll tell you, I know the answer. This is our God. And it is precisely why we can be at peace in times of real trouble the disciples had absolutely nothing to fear because the Lord was with them. The storm was not as strong as their refuge and their fortress. And that refuge was in the boat with them. But you need to know, later in Jesus' life, another storm would come. But this time, he let it come. And the tide of public opinion would turn against Jesus and his own people and the Roman government would put him on a cross. And that, that storm blew. It ran its course, but not on you. Not on you, but on him. Why? Why? So that when the earth gives way, the mountains tremble, even still we will forever be glad in the city of God with its king and our savior. Amen? Amen. You guys buried these words in your heart and you say them back to him. Amen.